we say together in one voice, amen and amen. Well, again, good morning, and uh, just extend my greeting along with everyone else who's already been here as well. Uh, for wherever you are watching us from, near or far, maybe you're watching us because it's what you do every week, or maybe you're tuning in to our worship service for the very first time, whatever the case may be. Um, it's good to be together, but it's also, it's also even, even better news, at least to my heart, to know that, that by next week, many of us will be able to gather together again. You may not be ready for that. Uh, we're trusting in God's timing for all of these things, uh, but it is encouraging me to look forward to the encouraging to me to be able to look forward to the fact that next week there'll be more than eight people in the room with me. Um, I need a few more people to make eye contact with. I think, feel like I put those who are here on the spot. Um, and, and I just want to, to hear our voices, especially in this Christmas season, singing the great songs of our faith together. So I hope you're looking forward to that. Uh, I know I'm also, and I know this isn't going to quite happen in the next couple of weeks, and I don't know about the rest of you, I'm also very much looking forward to the day when we can have real communion elements again. I, mean, I don't know what you're using at home, but I'm, I'm really tired of these little wafers and these miniature cups, and someday I hope we're going to be able to pass a plate again, pass the tray, uh, and, and it's just one of the many things that, uh, that COVID, coronavirus has taken away from us that I want back. But again, more than anything, I want to be back together with all of you and whoever else God wants to have join us as we move toward the celebration of Christ's birth. Uh, and, this, and, and next week, I want you to know that we're going to begin turning our attention in the preaching, in our study of God's Word together, to the themes and the events of Christmas. You can look forward to that. But this morning, we're going to finish out uh, this series we've been in the last few weeks called The Journey. So uh, wherever you have a Bible, whatever format you have it in this morning, I want you to take it out right now and meet me in your Bible in Acts chapter 16. I want you to meet me in your Bible in Acts chapter 16, where we're going to look at one more faith journey. And if you've not been with us the last three Sundays and don't know about this series, you say, I'm just coming in at the very end. I'm going to do my best to get you, you caught up on what this is all about as we get started. But I want to begin by reading the scripture. So make your way to Acts chapter 16. And, and where we're going to pick the story up, we're going to pick it up right in the middle of the chapter of Acts 16. And, and, and just for the sake of context, what you may want to know is right before this, and, and we looked at this story actually just a couple of months ago as well, but right before we were picking it up this morning, the Apostle Paul, along with his ministry companions Luke and Silas and Timothy, this band of four faithful servants and preachers of God's Word, had traveled for the very first time into what is present-day Europe with the gospel, and they'd begun their European ministry in the city of Philippi. And, and they met a, a, a woman named Lydia. They'd gone to a place of prayer outside the city. Uh, Lydia opened her heart uh, to receive Jesus Christ. That was the beginning of, 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 of the gospel coming to Philippi and, and to Europe and beyond. And, and immediately after the conclusion of that story of Lydia, this first convert to Christ in Europe, we pick up the story in Acts 16, 16 of what happened next in that city as Paul and his ministry companions were ministering, bringing the gospel, preaching there. So I'm going to begin reading this morning with all of that by way of introduction in Acts 16, verse 16, and I'm going to read through verse 34. This is what the Bible says. 
It says, it happened as we, again, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, were going to the place of prayer. This was outside of the city along a riverbank. This is the very place where Lydia, just a short time earlier, had come to know Jesus as Paul shared Christ. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out, the Spirit did, at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them, that is, Paul and Silas, to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them, Paul and Silas, into the inner prison, into the dungeon, and fastened their feet in stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he, the the jailer, called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and Rejoice greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, in 1 Timothy 4.16, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, his friend, his ministry partner, his protege, so to speak, in the faith. He wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.16, the following words. He said, Timothy, keep a close watch. Keep a close watch on yourself And on your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. In other words, Timothy, if you want to have maximum ministry impact, if you want to see men, women, and young people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, there's a couple of things you got to keep an eye on. There are a couple of things you've got to pay attention to. Now, here in the text, he says, keep a, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. In other words, your beliefs and your behavior. 
Your doctrine and your practice. Timothy, both of these things are of absolutely essential importance if you want to see people trust Christ. It's not just about the message that you preach. It's about the way it lives out or it is lived out in and through your life an example. And I believe that if Paul had wanted to, because he wrote this to Timothy a number of years after what we're looking at here this morning in Acts 16, I believe that if Paul had wanted to, he could have easily added on to the end of that statement. He could have said, after all, Timothy, remember the Philippian jailer? Do you remember what happened back in Philippi? Because while Timothy wasn't thrown into prison with Paul and Silas, as I said to you a moment ago, he was right there with him. He had been ministering alongside them. And Timothy knew the story of the jailer's journey from spiritually lost to spiritually found very, very well. He knew, he would have known, that as the jailer came to know Christ, it was both The teaching and the life, the example of Paul and of Silas that had major parts in bringing this man to saving faith. And and that's why in our quest to learn to live as witnesses, which is what this series has been all about, these evangelism shift-themed sermon series, in our quest to learn about living as witnesses, which I've repeatedly said means learning to meet people where they are, spiritually speaking, and then help them take a step in the direction of Christ. The question that's going to shape our study of this story this morning is simply this. What did the jailer see in Paul and Silas? What did he see in Paul and Silas that took him, as I said, from spiritually lost to spiritually found? What was it about their life and their teaching that was so in his face, it was so clear right in front of him that, it, that, that getting in his face, it then got into his head. And that ultimately, in a relatively short period of time, ended up changing, transforming this man's heart. What was it about Paul and Silas that got his attention? Well, as I've walked through the passage, I think there's five things. There may be more. But I see five things about Paul and Silas that that must have captured this jailer's attention and helped him move toward faith in Jesus Christ. And they are as follows, number one. The first thing we can say conclusively about Paul and Silas that got this man's attention and started him down this path or accelerated his path toward faith in Christ was the plain and simple fact that they didn't fit in. The first thing we can see about Paul and Silas that would have grasped this man's attention is they didn't fit in. Now the backstory of the slave girl here from verses 16 through 22, that that is a a sort of spiritual journey story in its own right. We could could easily uh, fashion a sermon, a message, a study out out of her journey from spiritually lost or spiritual bondage to spiritual freedom, but we're not going to explore it in depth today except to note this. That when verses 17 and 18 say, look in your Bible, that following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, which was, of course, true. But what we need to understand is that when it says in the next verse that having done this for many days, Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that what Paul did there was an act of great mercy. Because when it says that he was annoyed, it doesn't say he was annoyed with the girl. 
It says he was annoyed with the spirit. And, and actually, the Greek term for annoyed actually carries a, a note of being grieved over her condition. And it was, it was annoyance, it was grief, it was agitation, not over what this girl was doing, really not even over what she was saying, but what this oppressive spirit had done to her, that he said, enough already. And in mercy, he cast the spirit out. And we can only imagine the joy that that young woman must have felt by being instantaneously set free. And that, the reason we include that in part of the the jailer's story is because in God's orchestration, in God's divine design, that was the divine appointment that ultimately landed Paul and Silas in the Philippian jailer's custody. They did an act of mercy, and they ended up getting punished for it. Because while there's no evidence whatsoever in verses 16 through 22 that that the jailer with his own eyes and his own ears witnessed that act of exorcism, that act of demonic deliverance, he certainly would have been told the story when Paul and Silas showed up at the jail. And he most definitely would have been informed of the charge leveled against them, which was this. The charge being leveled, we can assume, against Paul and Silas, was that they were disturbing what was known in those days as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was an an understanding that anywhere the Roman Empire's jurisdiction went, you didn't rock the boat. You don't upset the system. You don't stir up crowds. You don't don't create uh, scenes among the people. You keep your head down. Go about your business and and stay out of the empire's way. But what are Paul and Silas doing? Well, they're just preaching the gospel. But by preaching the gospel, what was to the Romans a new and and to them an illegitimate religion, well, that's stirring up the people. It's drawing a crowd. In this case, they do something merciful. They cast a demon out of this young lady, and the guys who have been abusing and exploiting her go crazy. And it creates a scene. It creates a crisis. In a word, Paul and Silas, in serving Christ, are now labeled agitators. They don't fit in. Again, in those days, that's just something sensible people didn't do. You fit in, and you go about your business. And and so while what I'm saying, I guess, is this, that while the jailer had not gone looking for them, in God's design, they'd been hand-delivered to him, right into his presence, through which the second thing he saw in them, number one, he didn't fit, they didn't fit in, but number two was the fact that being delivered to him, these were men who sang through their suffering. They were being falsely accused, falsely abused, falsely mistreated. They'd done genuinely nothing wrong, but their suffering. And the jailer was about to see them sing their way through it. You know, maybe you've got to be of a, of a certain age, and I'm not exactly sure what age that would be to be familiar with this expression, but some of you may be familiar with an old expression about fighting, about brawling, about fistfights, uh, where people say, uh, use the expression, well, he really got in his licks on that one, or, or he really took some licks in, in that fistfight, in that, uh, in that uh, argument, in that battle, and I said, I don't know if you're familiar with that expression or not, but I want you to know that it actually started right here. 
Not expressly in the beating that Paul and Silas took, but in the, in the nature of the punishment they deserved. Because in those days, the Latin word for the officers in charge of administering the beating that Paul and Silas took, the Latin description for them, they were called lictors. So they were, with their wooden rods, getting in their licks on Paul and on Silas. And, and that might sound like not a big deal. That might sound to us like, well, it, it, it could have been worse. The fact of the matter is this, that while the, the wooden rods they used were a very different instrument than what was used as we understand it to scourge Jesus before his crucifixion, the result was exactly the same. By the time these, these lictors administered the beating to Paul and Silas, and Paul says later this happened to him three times, this was the first of three times, Paul and Silas, from their necks to their thighs, their backs would have been a a swollen, shredded, sweaty, sticky mess of blood. They would have probably been barely able to walk themselves. And and what does it say? It says when they got to the prison, the, the jailer put them in stocks. That would have only exacerbated their pain. When you think of what Jesus went through before the cross, realize that's what Paul and Silas endured here. It was no small thing. These men were suffering. However, while that was something this jailer no doubt had witnessed many, many times before, that was his job after all, to deal with those who were being punished. <laughs> What happened next was entirely new. Look in your Bible at verse 25. Because about midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In fact, you can even draw the conclusion, if you jump down to verse 27, that Paul and Silas sang the jailer to sleep. Because when things started getting busy, it says he woke up. But they are singing about midnight, and everybody's listening. And and undoubtedly, despite the fact that they had just taken such a severe beating through their, I believe, through their praying and their singing songs of praise, they were delivering a sort of one-two punch of their own to the jailer. I think they were delivering a message to him. And it began to, to chip away at his stony heart, because what are they singing? Were they singing gospel lyrics? They're singing the words of hope. Of Jesus. And those lyrics were ringing in his ears. And he was seeing the reality of it with his own eyes, right? Hey, Timothy, I can tell you from personal experience pay attention to what you're saying and what you're doing. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. And I think all of that, at least what it reminds me and what I would suggest it should remind all of us listen is that people are watching how we handle our suffering. We may not think so. And and, and we suffer in all sorts of different ways. And maybe you're in a season of suffering right now, maybe you're not. But when we suffer, if people know that we are believers, they're going to watch. They're going to pick up clues about the way in which we handle our suffering. And I believe, on the strength of this story, that, that many of them will end up drawing conclusions about the gospel because of it. Drawing conclusions about Jesus because of it. So let me ask you a personal pointed question. How are you handling your suffering? How are you responding to your trials? Listen. 
We are to walk, we know, by faith. We know that without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Can I tell you something? As a brother, as a friend, as someone who loves you, but someone who is, by definition, supposed to speak the truth in love, it takes zero faith, zero faith, to curse and complain for your suffering. Zero faith. It takes zero faith to stomp your feet, to swear, to scream, to shout. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the pain in an excruciating way. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that our our trials are pretend. It certainly wasn't here, right? Shredded, swollen backs. These men are suffering. More than I've ever suffered, at least physically, that's for sure. It took faith to do what they did. It took trust in God to do what they did. And we need to be careful how we handle our suffering because we shouldn't be responding to it the way everybody else does. Say, well, that's tough. Absolutely. But guess what? You've got the Holy Spirit. Same spirit these guys had. And you have their story. I have their story to look to. And I believe that with the Spirit's help, what we're being told here is we can learn to sing. Not because of our trials. Not going, oh, my trials and and my troubles are, are wonderful, but through them. Why? Because Jesus goes with me through them. And who knows? Somebody might notice. Somebody might see it. And somebody might make some sort of connection that enables them to take a step forward in their journey toward him. They didn't fit in. They sang through their suffering. Third, the third thing we can see about Paul and Silas, the third thing that I believe the jailer saw in Paul and Silas is that they prayed with power. The third thing we need to see in the story is that these were men who prayed with power. Look again at verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas, they're praying. They're singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors are open and everyone's chains were unfastened. You know what's interesting here? At least to me. Is there is no evidence whatsoever that Paul and Silas asked God to do that. Get us out of here. Now, maybe they did. I'm not saying they were superheroes, but the Bible doesn't say they were begging God to get them out of there. It says they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. However, the fact that what immediately followed was shaken foundations and unfastened shackles, I submit to you was not coincidental Right? These aren't two accidental happenings that, that simply took place back to back. Because here's the thing, at the very moment when it looks like to watching eyes, like ministry in Philippi, which had just gotten on the ground, off the ground, was grinding to a screeching halt. The two primary spokesmen are in a dungeon, in jail, been beaten within an inch of their lives. Well, what's really happening here? Well, we know what's happening now. God was just advancing the gospel through different means. God was going to open a door to the gospel in a different way. And and I think as we read here, we see that the jailer made that connection. What, What connection? These guys are praying and powerful things happened. They are singing to God and something supernatural took place. 
And that is why I believe, there's so much I want to say here, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll whittle it down to simply this. That's why it's so important that we understand, and, and this, is, this is at the very center of our evangelism shift training. It's at the very heart of, of what, what your life-to-life groups are, are going to be or may already be unpacking. Is this, that is why it's so very important that you and I are consciously, continually praying for our unsaved family and friends, praying for their salvation. That whether God wants to work through ordinary conversations or in more dramatic and even supernatural ways, what do we want to pray? We need to pray that God will reveal himself to them. Reveal his power. Reveal his love. Reveal his mercy and grace and his kindness. We need to pray that God will show them who he is and what they need. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous woman or a righteous man can accomplish much. God moves when his people pray. And, and by the way, if given the chance, why not tell your unsaved family and friends that's exactly what you're doing for them? I am praying for you that God will show you how real he is, that God will show you how much he loves you. I may not be able to persuade you of it. I may be a a lousy example at this point of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, but I have been changed because of what I've seen and what I've learned. And I'm going to pray that God does that for you. Why? Because then perhaps they'll make the connection. Somebody's praying and things have begun to happen. Maybe they'll make the connection. The jailer did here. He recognized they don't fit in. They sing through their suffering. They prayed with power forth. This is a big one. Because this goes from belief to behavior. Fourthly, the thing that got his attention was they demonstrated mercy. That Paul and Silas were men of tangible acts of mercy. And I don't know about you, but if I had been there with Paul and Silas, if I had gone through what they went through, and if I was enduring what they were enduring. I would have concluded the following. When the foundation started shaking and the shackles start coming off, I would have concluded this is God's way of saying you're free to go now and I'd have gone. And you probably would have too. This is God blessing us. He's getting us out of here because he loves us and he wants to do good things for us. But not these guys. Now, maybe They consciously chose to stay put. Maybe they couldn't flee due to the severity of their wounds. Maybe they simply didn't have time to make a break for it. But the fact of the matter is this, that somehow as the dust settled, they saw an opening. Not for their deliverance, but for his. There's something. Now, they didn't have to do that. They could have kept their mouths shut. They could have been bitter in their hearts. They could have kept to themselves. They could have waited to see what God's going to do. But that's not what they did. Because you see, the reason, look at verse 27 in your Bible. It says that when the jailer awoke, saw the prison doors opened, and drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped, was because in those days everybody knew it was a Roman rule, a Roman law, that if a jailer allowed prisoners to escape, the jailer would suffer the punishment they had coming. 
So if they were in for life, you're now sentenced to jail for life. If they're going to lose a hand for being a thief, they'd lose their hand. If they were about to be executed for their crimes, the jailer was executed in their place. That's another way of saying you don't mess with the empire, right? You don't mess with Caesar. You don't stand down on the job. So that's what he is thinking. I'll just get it over with now. That's why in verse 28, knowing that that was what was going through the jailer's mind, verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself. Don't. We're all still here. And you know, as I just thought about that, that act of, of mercy, not only did Paul and Silas not flee, if they even could have, but they turn and they begin to minister. They literally save this jailer's life. You know, it, it caused me to think, and I'll tell you, this was a new thought for me. I'd never really thought or considered it before. But what it caused me to begin to think about, and I need to think about it quite a bit more, is, is that learning to ask the question, or asking the question, How does God want to use this for his glory is not a question I should only ask when things are going badly. Now, when things go badly, right, that's what we remind each other. It's what we remind of ourselves. Well, well, trust, God's going to use this for his glory. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 10 years from now, but God's going to use this trouble for his glory. Guess what? It dawned on me for the first time in a very real way, God wants me to ask the same question when he's pouring blessings out on my life too. To use the blessings for his glory. See, the fact that God, as we know, is more interested in saving souls than securing my comfort, that's true all the time. Even when things are going well. He's still more concerned with people's salvation than with my accumulation. With my material blessings. Meaning what? Meaning this. That when things are going well, when we are thriving, you know, a little bit of self-denial can go a long way. Uh, A little bit of, of putting someone else's needs before my desires can make a massive difference. That an unwarranted, undeserved act of mercy, all acts of mercy are undeserved, but you know what I mean. It can become a profound testimony to the life-changing truth of the gospel that even when God is, as we sing, pouring out his goodness, his goodness is running after us, the question is still, why is he doing it? Where is his glory to be found in this? What can people see? Because God's number one is still rescuing people and bringing them into his kingdom. It's not making sure I get everything I want and get to enjoy it all the time down here. And that's certainly what happened here. They demonstrated mercy given the opportunity to do so. That had to have captured his attention. And then fifth and finally, having captured his attention in that way, the last thing I think this story tells us, at least for our purposes this morning, about Paul and Silas that got this man's attention was the fact that they possessed real hope. These were men who possessed genuine hope hope. Look at verses 29 and 30. After Paul tells him, don't hurt yourself, we're right here. 
says he, the jailer, called for the lights and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after bringing them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, when I read that, I thought a question came to mind. Where did this guy learn that lingo? Where did the Philippian jailer, a pagan, not a Christian, learn to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Because pagans don't talk that way. There's no evidence that, that they did in those days, certainly. Where did he learn? Well, maybe he picks it up listening to, to Paul and Silas sing their songs in the night. Language of salvation. Maybe, I think it might be more likely, that he picked it up from the slave girl. Remember? As I said, there's no evidence that he was there the moment Paul cast the demon out. But go back to verses 17 and 18. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of, the eight of you help me out, the way of salvation. These are guys who are here to tell you how to be saved. Ding. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think there's something to this Jesus story. And wherever it came from, whether it was from her or some other means entirely, the important thing to notice is Paul and Silas had an answer. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. What they said, what they said, what they meant is what Paul expresses more clearly in Romans chapter 10. You don't need to turn there, but you may want to make a note. Romans 10, 9 and following. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, Mr. Jailer, you and anyone else under your roof who will take this news to heart, you'll receive the sure and certain gift of eternal life. You must trust Jesus. And today, let's remember that as believers, we possess that same hope. And whether it feels like it or not, we have the same liberty to share that message as they did with others. And listen, if they're going to be saved, if your unbelieving family and friends are going to be saved, we must share it with them. We must pay attention to our beliefs and our behavior, our life and what we're saying and what we're teaching. So let's ask ourselves this question. If tonight somebody knocks on your door, I don't expect this to happen, but if it did, saying, ma'am, sir, what must I do to be saved? Are you ready? Can you tell them? Can we explain the gospel in a way that they can hear and believe? Are we ready to point People to Jesus to meet them where they are and help them in this case take that final step. As I've been saying throughout this series the past several Sundays, 
The point of these messages is to understand that, that for most people, coming to faith in Jesus is a process. It is the rare occurrence where it all just suddenly happens at once. Most people are on a journey, as you were, as I was, from spiritually lost to found in Christ. And so by looking at these stories, the woman at the well, uh, the, the Philippian jailer this morning, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, what, what we've seen or what I hope we are gathering from it is this, that while all four of those journeys ended the same place, trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, each of those journeys was dynamically unique. One thing they had in common, however, in all of them was this. Along the way, God brought believers into their lives who met them where they were and helped them take another step. Exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Exactly what we are supposed to be doing too. That's why today's big idea, big idea of this study, this look at the Philippian jailer's salvation story is this. Let people in on your journey with Jesus. Let people in on your walk with Jesus. As they, we hope and pray, are journeying toward him, we can share our journey with them, the journey of how we came to Christ and the journey of how Christ has been with us each step of the way ever since, whether we have been faithful and fruitful or not. We need to lovingly get in some people's faces and tell them who Jesus is and let them see the gospel alive in us. Father, I, 